Welcome to Have You Seen This, the podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten cinema. All discussions will be spoiler-heavy. You have been warned. Welcome to Have You Seen This. This week, Yves and I had the opportunity to talk to Dutch film director Atta de Jong. He directed Highway to Hell, the cult classic, as well as Drop Dead Fred, and has had an ongoing film career since the 1970s. His most recent film, which he co-directed with Emily Harris, is called Love is Thicker Than Water, and it will be arriving at U.S. festivals in the fall. But in the meantime, check out the interview. Well, yeah, let me start it off then. Uh... So you made movies in Holland. You made a couple of movies there. Then um, yeah. you come to the U.S. How does that lead to Highway to Hell? Because also your, your Dutch movies are very different genre-wise from Highway. Yeah. And also what attracted you to that project? Yeah, it was... Um, it, was uh, it, it was literally... Like I, I, went, I had made six features in Holland before I was 33, which is quite wow. unusual. Um, and I thought I can get old and get subsidy all the time and, you know, it's not going to be any challenge. So I literally packed my bags, two bags, one with videotapes and one uh, with some clothes and uh, went to Hollywood, didn't know anyone, knew one person and did the thing that you have to do when you go to Hollywood, Hollywood, which means you go to every party, every barbecue, you meet a lot of people, you do networking, you sort of like boast about yourself, but then in a more European modest way and uh, after a while I started to people always looked at my films and they always said oh my Dutch films they always said oh they're great they're fantastic but nobody gave me a job uh, because they all thought well you know those successes in Holland are local successes they don't mean anything so after a while after about a year I was going to stay for three months but after a year I was still there I got a Miami Vice and after I did Miami Vice, which was actually with Chris Rock and James Brown, the godfather of soul, uh, who I didn't know who that was, but uh, <laughs> that, that's a story in itself. Uh, I came back and, and strangely enough, nobody looked at the Miami Vice, but everybody knew I'd done it because my agent told them, of course. They still looked at the Dutch films. And then suddenly, because somebody had invested a million dollars, at that point, those episodes cost about a million. Somebody had invested serious money, Universal. I suddenly got offers, you know, uh, scripts, and uh, more serious than scripts that were, um, you know, ju just uh, uh, people who wanted to make a film but didn't have any money and all that. So this script came through uh, MGM. And the, the executives had seen my films. They loved my European films. They wanted to give Highway to Hell a European flavor. And I saw the Greek mythology possibilities in there. Um, and one thing led to another. We, we went pretty far with, uh, we were pretty far with MGM. But then as these things happened, MGM was sold to Kirk Korean. So the whole deal fell apart. But one of the executives of MGM instead of a severance pay, she asked for the rights of Highway to Hell. And she was very loyal to me, uh, Marianne Page, she was very loyal to me. And uh, she um, uh, said, you know, uh, do you still want to do the film? You know, I was a whore enough to say yes. And also, I have to admit, I absolutely thought that Brian Helgeland was extremely talented. 
and had a, had written a very smart script and a very good genre film. And though our budget, you know, with MGM, it would have been a bit more, but our budget, of course, like became less and less. But I had the feeling, I, I'll be very honest, I had the feeling that it was a good career move, which I barely have ever done. And I thought there was enough fun in it to do because I'd never done an action film. Uh, I mean, there was never money for something like that in Hollywood. It just couldn't happen. But it was for me, it was so American. While actually the producer there thought I was ideally as a European. Anyway, so that's a very long answer to say that that I thought that Brian was absolutely uh, very talented. He was not the Brian Hel Helgeland that he is now. You know, he was really just starting. Yeah. He hadn't sold a script yet. He might have done one of the Freddy Nightmares, but it wasn't yeah. filmed yet. So he was really at the beginning. He still lived practically under the runway of LAX, you know, and his wife worked in uh, something like the Holiday Inn cleaning uh, rooms. And uh, I'll never forget that Brian and I always like played ping pong. And, you know, his ping pong table was his kitchen table, which was about a meter and a half long and one meter wide there. And sometimes we played the game because that was always like, the, uh, we always had to change the script. And then, you know, we sort of like smashed. And then the, the deal was that whenever you smash, you have to scream which scene was going to go out. You know, that, so we, <laughs> we had so much fun with those things. Now, of course, Brian has a house in probably Pacific Palisades with his own uh, tennis court. <laughs> uh, so things change. It took, I think it took like a year and a half, if not more, before the financing was really there uh, because uh, we tried all, well, the particular producers tried all kinds of financiers and ultimately Hamdale stepped in. Okay. And, that and was, Hamdale that at the, that um, point. That was the production company which later uh, went under, I believe. Yeah, they went bankrupt, right? Yeah. They went later. They went back. Unfortunately, they went bankrupt during our post-production. I mean, they had done uh, a platoon. They had done the Last Emperor. They had done a number of great films where they really were very successful. Also, made a lot of us uh, won a lot of Oscars, and they um, then invested a little bit haphazardly. And um, anyway, they they basically expected Highway to Hell to become a film like that. But by the time we finished the film, they were bankrupt and never released the film. Huh. Right. Well, actually, that's not entirely true. They released the film in seven prints without a poster or anything because otherwise the uh, video deal would not, uh, uh, would not be valid. There had to be a theatrical release. So they, they released in seven prints without a press meaning anything. And then the video was released and the video did actually phenomenally well. Uh, which was astounding because there was barely any awareness of the film. Um. Yeah, it seemed it seemed like the movie really uh, developed its um, its fame through, like you said, like through video because it it barely appeared in theaters and there was no press for it, like you were saying. But um, yeah, w um, one of the questions that I was curious about was because the film kind of skipped from VHS to Blu-ray. Um, so yeah. how did how did the Blu-ray come to happen? Like how do, how do you get the push for a Blu-ray release? Well, I, 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 I'm not sure if it's true, but it is at least a, a nice vain story. See, the the, the film I, I knew the film had never really been seen by a lot of people, but I, I also noticed that some people, to my astounding, uh, uh, to my astonishment, really liked the film. 
and particularly in America. So at a certain point, I met a man in London, Joe Dreyer, who represented all kinds of classic films for MGM UA. And as fate goes, because Hemdale went bankrupt through a different stage, the film, weirdly enough, went back into the MGM catalog. No, they bought the library at a certain point, so it became an MGM film again, a UA MGM film. And um, I said to Joe, can I buy the uh, DVD rights? Because uh, I would love the film to be, you know, to be available. And Joe started to investigate with MGM, and they were sort of like willing, because at first they didn't even know they had the film. <laughs> and then, you know, I went to, to America, and I, I went to the lawyers there and of MGM and to the people who helped me. They were very nice. They were very, but the more I, I tried to buy the film, the more they thought that the film was actually valuable. That they thought <laughs> if somebody is so eager to buy this film that we never heard of, there must be some money there. So after, literally after about four or five or maybe even more years, they said, well, you know, we actually uh, we sold the film to uh, Kino Lorber. And I didn't care because the only thing that I wanted was the film to be released. You know, it was not about the money for me. And on top of that, Kino Lorber, of course, does something like that ten times better than I can. You know, I, 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 in my case, it would be... And I actually started it because I didn't have a copy myself, and I bought an illegal copy on the internet. <laughs> and when I bought that illegal copy 10 years ago, I saw how bad quality it was, and I thought, you know, this is such a shame. So that's why I started to try and get the film properly released. But So obviously it's not only because I was so insistent, also because Kino Lorber saw some sort of uh, value in it, because I was pushing them and saying, oh, you know, it's with... Uh, um, uh, the Ben Stiller is in it, you know, and and uh, other people are in that, and this is like uh, Brian Helgland won an Oscar, da, da, da. so they, they could put things on the cover of the, the of the Blu-ray jacket, and, and it is as stupid as that. That ultimately, I think, pulled them over. But the, the you know, I was like in Oporto, Portugal, in an, uh, uh, a sort of thriller science fiction festival, and they, for instance, showed Highway to Hell again, and people from Brazil there said, oh, it's our favorite film, and people from Spain knew the film. I had no idea. I, I, knew, I only thought that some people in, in America knew the film, but the film has a, let's say, a very small, awkward cult following, so I'm extremely happy that it's now available. Yeah, we're happy because, too because we, we actually got yeah. to see it. Yeah, exactly. edition, yeah. <laughs> you know, films die in a strange way. I mean, the, people always say films are forever. Well, that's not true. Most films disappear. And it is, it is such a luxury that your film is re-released on Blu-ray. I have the same now with, uh, with uh, Drop Dead Fred, also 25 years old. Huh. And the film is going to be re-released in a few months on Blu-ray. Yes, uh, I, I watched it last night, in fact, and, and enjoyed it. So, um, and this, that's kind of the whole reason that I'm doing this particular podcast. You know, it's called Have You Seen This? And we're kind of trying to highlight movies which have been a little bit overlooked or maybe disappeared from view or whatever. And so that's why we thought that Highway to Hell would be, would be really ideal, you know, because it, yeah. it kind of flew under the radar and then came back in a second life, um, to yeah. home video and yeah. you know now it's back so you know we're anxious to kind yeah. of share it with people yeah there's always these strange things you know that uh you you make a film and 
I'll be very honest, at the time that I made the film and finished the film, I wasn't really happy because uh, John Daly of Hamdale, who at that point in the editing wasn't bankrupt yet, only it was like during the last stage in the release, re-edited the film. And he's, he was legendary for that. He, like uh, uh, Oliver Stone, for instance, like had two uh, prints of his film, one working copy that he left there so... John Daly could re-edit everything he thought was better, and then he had the real film, which he hit, and which he ultimately brought to the lab to be uh, uh, the, where the negative cutting happened. And the same thing with Cameron, or a similar thing with Cameron with the first Terminator. So John Daly also had, Hamden had the first Terminator also. Uh, and also, he like kidnapped the film in his like little Pinto or whatever he had, and, and drove it away so... John Daly couldn't touch it anymore. So, uh, but I didn't have that kind of, probably not that guts. Uh, <laughs> but, so I couldn't kidnap the film and he did um, make a lot of recuts and I actually took my name off. I went to the director's field and I said, this is such a, no, the film is so much changed. Da, 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 da. And then because of that, they allowed, Daly allowed me to put some stuff back but the ending uh, is not the ending it had to be, according to me, because at the at the real ending is that the two of them, um, Rachel and and uh, Ch uh, Chatlow, are at an airport and say goodbye to the little boy and the dog and all that, and everybody goes their own way in a in a different way. And now it ends a little bit, uh, yeah, for me in nothing, and therefore these last credits were added. But it was actually Brian. Brian said to me, "If you take your name off." I'll put my name on as a director because it's a good film. <laughs> and, and I thought, Jesus, he probably knows more than I do. And in all honesty, you know, I've always thought, oh, the film such and such. But so many people loved it. It shows you a director doesn't know shit. You know, a director doesn't know anything. But yeah, they, if they you always... see it now, do you, do you still see certain scenes where you're like, ah, I wish it, it was my cut? Or are you, also, are you happy, like... Has enough time passed that you can look back and be happy with it? Well, there has enough time passed to, to not feel uh, upset about it anymore. There are still moments where I think that was better in the original version, which mm -hmm. doesn't exist anymore, to, mm -hmm. to my knowledge. But there's also something that I think, well, there were certain things that John Daly did where he probably was right, mm -hmm. where he probably understood the genre better than I did. So... It is a, it's a very wise lesson that, you know, you, you, you have to be a bit stubborn and you have to be a little bit like follow your own uh, intuition and all that. But the other person is not necessarily wrong. And, and that is a certain kind of uh, almost like a modesty, is that, which is not bad to uh, understand. I mean, for instance, like what we did at the time, we had a test screening of, let's say, my version for argument's sake. And then after the record of John Daly, we had a, a, a test screening of his version. Well, his version did not score better than my version. Actually, it scored a little bit less, but not dramatically much less. So there's also a truth at a certain point, a film is what it is. And you can definitely change a film a lot by editing, but you can't really change that much. Right. So um, one, of the, uh, one thing that you mentioned is um, maybe... John Daly understood the genre better than you did. Um, and probably Americans aren't, it's 
hard to see a lot of your films here in the States, especially like your early stuff. So um, can you tell us a little bit about what kind, what, what genre were you working in early in your career and like how much of a, of a um, jolt was it to go to kind of a, an action um, picture? Yeah, well, see, the films are made in Holland by, by necessity, all dramas, because it's, it's, it's almost the, and sometimes with a comedy element in it or something, but they were basically had uh, no uh, special effects because we couldn't afford it, uh, that had no stunts because we didn't have the skills to do it, uh, it didn't have any uh, specific American genre like a musical or... Um, anything like that because that is a genre that we certainly at that time didn't understand or it was not within our culture. Uh, these things have changed a little bit. I mean, it's still like, you know, the budget does make a big difference. Mm -hmm. uh, so by necessity, the films had been dramas with sometimes a lighter tone or a, a, a more romantic tone or whatever, but the core of it was dramas. And, and even with Highway to Hell, I always approach it from the uh, from the character's point of view. So even in Highway to Hell, uh, my uh, starting point was what do the leading characters really want? What do they try to achieve? What is their motivation and all that? And then all the action and all that had to be believable within their world. Um, and when I say that maybe John Daly uh, understood the drama, the, the genre better, is that sometimes in a, in a genre uh, like this, which is between thriller and action, um, or between horror and action, uh, you sometimes don't go for the believability in character, but you go for the effect. Mm -hmm. And 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 he did that, and I've always thought, oh, you can't do that because you know if the char if it is not motivated by the characters. Uh, uh, behavior, then nobody will believe it. Well, genre people actually don't care that much. They believe it when they are basically entertained. Yeah, and um, I feel like that's kind of one of the strengths of Highway to Hell is that because, like, Chad Lowe's character is a very rounded character because he he isn't a typical action hero. He's kind of he's a little bit of a hapless, you know, kind of a young kid. Yeah. I mean, at certain point, I, I re-saw the film again in, in Oporto because I hadn't seen it for many years. And I, I'm not, not sure if I can quote it correctly, but at a certain point, the devil says, you know, uh, they say, oh, we, we, we love each other and we haven't even eloped yet and we're still in love. I said, love, you know, love, what a nonsense. It's all vanity and fear. And in essence, that is the core of the film because... That is what Chad Lowe's character is afraid of, that he actually doesn't know what love is and that he has to discover what love is and that it is not vanity and fear, but that it is a sharing of emotions which helps both. So there is a other layer that definitely was intended, but was a little bit hidden. Like, you know, in Drop That Threat, for instance, you have a whole subtext of uh, abuse, of, of abuse at a young age, which is never spoken of. Uh, but it's there. In, in Highway to Hell, you have this search for what love actually means and what loyalty means. And I, I always hoped that that would give the film a slightly other flavor. And that's probably what the producers meant with the European flavor. Uh, and then, of course, you had like the whole uh, Greek mythology, which was fun, but also had a meaning to... to indicate that life in itself has iconic uh, elements 
that come back no matter what you do. Exactly. Well, that sounds serious, isn't it? So I think a lot, a lot of times, like even if you're, you know, I mean, we we're we're relatively savvy movie industry people. <laughs> yeah. We, we would like to think we are. Yeah, we, no, we um, I kid, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. even if you know, <laughs> even if you know a little bit about how the industry works, it's kind of hard to get a picture of, um, you know, like micro budget versus big budget. Um, and yeah. all the shades in between. So can you kind of give us a picture of like what sort of a budget you were working with when you started Highway to Hell? Was, were you in the small yeah, budget I, area? I, I, yeah, I can easily say that. It doesn't mean that much anymore, but we had uh, near $6 million. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe they advertised always with $9 million, but that is, uh, the, the real budget was uh, a small six, something like 5.8. Uh, and that probably would translate now to I would think probably twelve between twelve and fourteen million, mm -hmm. which is much uh, more than you've, you've had in Holland, probably. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> you know, the, the the most expensive film I had made in Holland until that time was something like, well, it it wouldn't have been more than a million. Huh. And and I, at the very beginning when I came to LA, I made this huge mistake. I went to people and we talked about project. And of course, you always have plans. And I said, oh, we can easily make this for a million or million point two at the most, which was already huge for me. And already at that time, it was like the second part of the 80s. Nobody was interested in that. Now, nobody wanted to make a film for a million. Because if you made a film for a million, it was either an indie film that would never make any money or you didn't know what you were doing. It was easier to get a film of five, six million than a film for one million. Hmm. That's very interesting. And I think that is in essence still true yeah. in Hollywood. Yeah. It is easier to have a high concept film that costs 60 million than to have a, 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 a small quality film that costs three million. Yes. Um, with the budget that you were working with, um, were you able to get the the look that you wanted with the picture or did you kind of feel feel the pinch of the of the smaller budget especially because um there are a lot of practical effects in the film yeah i, I must say by looking back at it i thought that at at certain points it looked a bit cheaper than it should have <laughs> and that is not always the fault of money it is usually time pressure and yeah just, just thinking you will get away with it but um uh, you know, the, the special effects are okay, the stunts are okay, but sometimes, for instance, like when they arrive at the River Styx and all the dead people walk there, they just have a sheet on top of them. And we all thought that was a great idea, it was very simple, but it does look a bit cheap. You know? <laughs> so, well, we did. so there are moments where you think that, in, in retrospect, I certainly didn't have that, that smartness at that point. Yeah, it would it would have been better if we had the same amount of money to choose a few scenes where you actually uh, elaborate a little bit on the production value of those scenes and then do other scenes a bit cheaper, like a dialogue scene. What the hell, you know, just make them what's a little bit simple, make them a bit closer, but spend your money on a few scenes where where it actually looks better. For, for instance, like the whenever they come into Hell City and they are there uh, in in the... The, the catacombs of hell. I mean, there's one very nice shot where you see the apple, you know, under uh, basically the apple of Adam and Eve. That's an okay shot. But the sets there are a bit cheap. 
And okay, a cheap set is one thing, but then you have to have enough light uh, to make it look more interesting. And we didn't have the time and the light uh, to to disguise our weaknesses, which is a little bit of uh, I see that now, and I, obviously I I think I saw it then, but you know there's a lot of wishful thinking. You think you get away with it, and and the charm of the fact that the film is 25 years old makes it acceptable now. But in a bigger scheme of things, the I mean Cameron did not make that mistake in in uh, Terminator. He he made sure that whenever he didn't have money. He made the kind of shots where he didn't pretend to have money, you know. And we sometimes pretended to have money while we didn't. <laughs> so you had you had um, already worked a little bit in America, obviously, um, before making this film. I mean, you, like you did the Miami Vice episode and everything. So I assume you were you were kind of used to that milieu. But um, was it a big culture shock for you coming to the states when you did first come over? Oh, I, I can only say I adored it. I loved it. I, I loved it for all the wrong reasons, but uh, <laughs> uh, I love to drive in a car on the freeway, you know, and, and, and nowhere in, in the world does rock and roll music sound as good as in, in, in uh, L.A. Mm -hmm. and, but the main thing was that uh, everybody in L.A. loved film. They were all busy with film. In Holland, if you're a filmmaker, uh, you're basically a pariah because you're using subsidy money and all that. And, and, and really, the, the literal example for me was I left Holland with my two little suitcases and the customs agent said to me in, in, in Amsterdam, said, so what's your profession? And it had already taken me 10 years to dare to admit filmmaker. So I said, filmmaker? He said, no, no, not your hobby, your profession. <laughs> So 10 hours later, I arrive in L.A., and the, cu the custom guy says, um, so what's your profession? I said, filmmaker. He said, oh, what film have you made? Is there anything that, I've can, that I could have seen? Is there any stars in it? I thought I had landed in heaven. <laughs> and and people, you know, people in a small country that has a subsidy are very envious. If I have a success, that's the worst thing I can do to have friends. Because if I have a success, I have more chance to get new money. If I have a, a flop, you know, everybody can be your friend because you're not a threat. And uh, so, so I, I really love to start. I, I had many friends visiting me in the, in the six, seven years that I lived there. And uh, they all said, oh, you know, they're all so superficial, which I don't think is true. That's not, not at all true. It's a different culture. Um, but if you cannot embrace the culture, then you will never really work there. And and I thought it wasn't, uh, you know, I was fortunate, of course. I was not a black kid in the ghetto, which is a lot tougher. You know, and I always had a one-way ticket back. If it didn't work out, I could always go back. Um, and uh, I, had to, I had the fortune that, um, yeah, that, that, that I liked it, and I liked the culture and the good immigration. So... The real filmmaking was, weirdly enough, not that different. You had more people. And the difference with Hollywood is, if you say it very broadly, there is money to correct your mistakes. Even with a budget of Highway to Hell, if you really did something wrong, we could do a reshoot. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in a small country, that's impossible. You shoot what you shoot, and that's what you have. And there's no way out. Uh, so the, the, it wasn't... 
so much of a culture shock. For me, it was a, a, in the beginning a warm bath. Mm. And, and at the other hand, it is tough, of course, because if you don't deliver what the industry wants, you're out, you know, and, and you're just as good as your last film. Mm. Right. But for instance, you were saying uh, John Daly making his cut of the movie. Would something like that have ever happened in Holland? No. No. And, and that, that, is, that is a big difference. Uh, the, uh, but at the same time, you are very well protected in America. I mean, the, the Director's Guild uh, rules say that he cannot do that. And if he does it anyway, uh, then I can take my normal name off. It becomes an Alan Smithy film, which is, not, of course, not a good thing for, uh, uh, for publicity and all that. And uh, I think I still have it. I, oh, no, oh, you don't, can't see it anyway. I still have it framed, that letter, <laughs> that it's an Alan Stafford. But, uh, uh, and it was a mistake. The film was absolutely much, much better than, than I thought it was. And it was my old European feeling of being an auteur that led me to believe it had to be my way or the highway. Hmm. And, uh, and that wasn't completely right. John Daly was more right than I thought he was. And I can see that now. I mean, it wasn't completely right, but he was certainly more right than I thought at that time. Right. Uh, I had a question about the... Because uh, there's some amazing makeup and, and effects and practical effects in the movie. Uh, and you were also saying, yeah. you know, difference with Europe and, and, and America. There, there are more people and uh, it's a bigger set. But had you also... Had you worked with makeup effects to this extent before? And how was Never. that working with it? Never. I mean, the, the biggest uh, special effects I ever had makeup-wise was probably a cut in a hand or something. Uh, so that, that was really, like, like neglectable. Uh, I mean, at that time, the, the, let's say the $6 million budget was not a, a great budget. Even for that time, it wasn't great. Uh, so we found a, a special makeup man who was at the, at the start of his career, uh, Steve Johnson. And he wanted to prove himself, and he was very talented. And if one thing, I mean, you have to always be very careful not to praise your own uh, laurels, and that's, that's a stupid thing. But I, I, one of the best things a director can have is see the quality of other people. You know, because if the other people are good, they make you good. So it's only better to choose the best possible people that are uh, available within the, the money you have and uh, available within the area you live and all that. And my feeling was that Steve Johnson, though he did not have the credits at that point yet, was, a, was a, an eager and very talented uh, man. And I think that has been proven to be right. Just like, for instance, Brian Helpland. You know, Brian was, I thought, extremely talented. And uh, th that, has, that happened to be true. Um. And, but was it so like, so <laughs> the, the, the short answer is I had never worked with uh, special effects to that, that extent. And it was a bit difficult to, uh, to plan it because, you know, when you have a tight schedule, you have to make sure that your special effects, are, that you're not sitting there for two hours waiting until the special effects are ready. And, and Steve was pretty good in estimating what the time would be. And we had a brilliant first AD. You know, I, that was like uh, an enrichment for me, uh, that, that he really was very good. He was very tough also, but he, he really knew when to plan what. Right. Uh, he, uh, he uh, Steve Johnson, uh, your makeup uh, guy, he says on the DVD or on the Blu-ray, he says that he was still very young and on, went on set 
when the makeup wasn't right, he would sometimes yell cut and, and interfere with your shots? <laughs> I I have to admit, I can't remember that because I, I there's one of the few things that I always do. If I mean, you had very often like if you had a shot and the focus did it wrong, the focus puller would say cut. And I always say to you, never say that again because it is not for you to choose when a, when a shot is wrong or not. So uh, I think it's an apocryphal story. Uh, of, <laughs> but, but I happily grant it to him. <laughs> I mean, sometimes when it really goes wrong, you see it in their eyes and they, they're not in their scene anymore. But if it's a good actor, they can actually act on. And uh, then a part of the scene could be fantastic. And also they learn what's wrong in that shot. If you don't let the people go till the end, they'll never get to good acting. So you better do a bad take, but complete it in order to make a good take. Uh, so I, I would never allow somebody to, uh, to stop the take. Yeah, he, he did say in the interview that you were not very happy with him when he did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think... Why? Evker uh, actually read your book, which was called. Uh, well, it translates to Kate Winslet has giant feet, yes. uh, which oh, I, yeah, I adored. Yeah. By the way, it was a great book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was actually a children's book. I had invented uh, for all my children. I always invented games, and at a certain point, I made fifty-two games with with all the games I made for uh, for my children, and every game had a story, and there was. Usually these stories were the the source of the game. Huh. And uh, talking about Steve Johnson and all that, you probably read the story about uh, uh, Michael Jackson. And it was like, you know, when, when I went to Steve Johnson to, to look at a, a, a concept of something that we were doing in pre-production, a guy came out of the door and he said, do you recognize me? And I said, no. I said, don't you know who I am? I said, no. So we'll go inside. And of course, I asked Steve Johnson, who is that? He said, Michael Jackson. Because at that time, Michael Jackson, every six weeks, he came to Chief Johnson and got a whole makeup, another face, so he could go shopping without being recognized. So then I made a game of people not being recognized for children and all that. But that was a story there. But they took the story separate in a, in a separate book. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Huh. <laughs> yeah, so that the original book has 52 children's game. Oh, okay. And the stories. That's great. <laughs> yeah, that must have been a real charge for Michael Jackson to not be recognized. Yeah, no, that, that's impressive. Yeah, like, <laughs> this, was, this was in the time, this was in its early times. I don't forget, this was like 1987. Okay. That time, maybe 88, but uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't that far gone as later. Right, right, yeah. That, um, yeah, things took a little bit of a turn for them. But, <laughs> but yeah, to be to be like not recognized by someone must have been. Yeah, that's like, that's some that's some good makeup. Yeah, uh, it must have been. It must yeah. have been great for him because you know it kind of takes the pressure off. It's <laughs> interesting. But um, I think did you, Ivka, did you have? Um, yeah, there's yeah, yes. You uh, you also there's a story in your book where you uh, in relation to Highway to Hell. Uh, described that you had a very shady early morning meeting about the Jimmy Hoffa scene. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's absolutely true. I mean, the, the you know you know the phenomenon of the Teamsters. Yes. You know, and the Teamsters uh, traditionally has always said, oh, it's all mafia," uh, and whether or not they're mafia, I don't know. But certainly, Teamsters always came uh, by four, and uh, people always joke that it has to be four because otherwise they can't play can't play poker. 
You have to have four people at least to play poker or certain card games. So there were always, you had either four or eight or 12 or 16. You didn't have like seven teamsters. Uh, and uh, we were a non-union film. We were SAG and DGA and a Writers Guild, but we were not, not union. But the, that's something else of not having teamsters. So uh, me and the production manager had to come and um, go to these uh, teamsters who were like in, in a, the harbor area of L.A. somewhere in a house that I, I remember as completely de derelict. And, and we had to basically uh, come at a time that was something like extremely early in the morning. Uh, it, was, it was intimidating and I, I actually was scared. I was just scared. <laughs> and the guys, of course, ne never said anything wrong. We were the most kind and uh, uh, gentle people you can imagine. Because, you know, when you know you have power, you don't have to be mean anymore. <laughs> That's very true. I, I know I probably would have been, been shitting my pants. <laughs> terror. But that, that must have also been a very different experience from Europe. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but but uh, those those things, of course, well, that was a bit scary, to be honest. But, but most of these things, as I said, you know, everybody loved, uh, I loved LA because everybody loved film. It was literally like when I was, uh, once I broke down with my car on the freeway, and I had just done Miami Vice. I hadn't done Highway to Hell yet. Uh, and I broke down on the, the freeway and the tow truck arrived. And, of course, everybody now, very upfront, very direct, says, what do you do? And I sort of like said, oh, yeah, I'm a filmmaker. What have you done? Miami Vice. He said, well, I only tow you if you read my script. So he opens <laughs> the block, gives me his script, and I had to read the script while he was towing me to the garage. <laughs> and I, I adored it. I loved it. <laughs> I wonder if you ever made it. Yeah, I was going to say, that wasn't Highway to Hell, was it? No. <laughs> that was not Highway to Hell, no. No, I, I, a friend of mine who was a, a junior executive in Disney TV, a woman, she had a similar thing that she had an enormous toothache in the weekend and had to go to an emergency dentist. And he did the same. You have to read my script or I won't help you. So I actually saw her reading like while he was drilling. You know, she was reading the script. But that actually has been made, that script. <laughs> uh, and and the guy left his job, but after a few years he went back because he didn't get anything else made. And then you know his dentist work made him more money than writing scripts. So. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's that's my problem is I haven't held anybody hostage. See, that's what you need to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's like read this or although I don't know if it would work at my job. <laughs> uh, I had another question about your uh, uh, your portrayal of hell. Because you have, uh, it's yeah. not like the Christian hell, like there's, there's Greek mythology in there, but you also have, you know, the German Beatles and um, yeah. you have like the, the Andy Warhols. It's, it's a wonderful mix of, of things. How did you guys came to that? That was, uh, you're, you're absolutely, it's smart that you picked up on the Beatles because I, uh, I always thought that, you know, whenever you're in hell, uh, that was one of the things that surprised me so much in LA that so many people drove Mercedes's and German cars. And there, there was barely any historical knowledge, you know. In my time, when I grew up, you would not drive a German car. You would just not do it. Uh, now that's all different, you know, it's all uh, past and all that. Uh, but um, the, the Beatles, was a, the, 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 those little Beatle cars were an absolute choice to portray, uh, to give it a political subtext. You, it's very smart you picked up on the non-Christian elements because it was a, a goal of us to make hell 
not look like a Christian variation, so we didn't want to do Jeroen Bosch. Uh, at the same time, we thought the absurdity of Jeroen Bosch was an interesting thing, and that's why uh, things like, I actually like Andy Warhol, but why Andy Warhol came in, because it was an absurdity that seemed to fit a diversity in hell, where hell was, it was most of, most of all it was based on Sartre's, uh, Sartre's saying, like, hell is the other. Yes. So hell is basically <laughs> what what you what you think it will be, and particularly other people who are nasty. So, for instance, for the people in Hoffa's in Hoffa's saloon, hell is not such a bad place. They seem to have a pretty good time. <laughs> but for the the, the dic dictators there, they're bored because they can't really uh, dictate anybody. They can't really uh, uh, play out their meanness because it doesn't mean anything anymore. So hell is, hell is basically what you fear it will be. And that was the concept that lay there before. That was, that was something I discussed a lot with, with Brian. It wasn't what Brian brought in. Brian was more, he, he made a non-religious hell, but that's where it stopped. He didn't have a particular vision, but he agreed with this approach. Hmm. Have you been to Las Vegas? <laughs> Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, because uh, one of the things that I liked about um, your, the vision of hell that you, that you mentioned is because, like, when I was when I was younger, uh, my mom was afraid to fly. I grew up in Southern California, and so we were limited in where we could go to vacation. So we went to Las Vegas a lot, and there was a real familiarity to the setting of hell in this movie. Yeah. You know, this kind of like remote desert location like a terrible casino with like really crass terrible yeah. people which so it it yeah. had the ring of familiarity to me which i enjoyed yeah. <laughs> i'm not i i i think in all honesty that i hadn't been in las vegas when before we made highway to hell because i was only in america for a year and i don't think i'd been there yet but of course i'd seen a lot about it and all that and uh so there was a a, a form of sleaziness that had to mix with the Greek mythology. And, uh, and it had to be some fun. Like always whenever the people walk, these, these people in all these uniforms that go through all the ages. You know, you have people from the French Revolution, you have people from the Pro Prussian, Prussian times, you have people in all kinds of different uniforms, but we always wanted to have a very tall woman next to a very short guy. You know, that, that sort of things. Uh, and... Uh, and, and there was, for instance, no greenery in, in hell. We, we only looked for locations where there was never any grass or whatever. I mean, sometimes you see a very little thing. I remember that once we had a perfect location, but there was a, one tree that stuck out with very green leaves, and I had cut it down, and some people in the crew were extremely angry because it was, they said it had taken 20 years to grow. <laughs> <laughs> because this was but also was before a, you could just take it out in post-production. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Now you would just blur it away. Uh, um, since you were now, it, now the film probably a lot of like the sets. Uh, I mean, we, for instance, like uh, the 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 let's say the office building of the devil is an is a classical glass painting. That is not a CGI shot. It's a classical glass painting. And we were like on the verge of CGI and the old way of doing effects. And the old way of doing effects was still cheaper. And that was the reason why we did it. Huh. True. Really but it's true, true that, that like, for instance, like the garage, which, we, which was just a, a front, 
in the middle of the desert, you would now just put it in there uh, through G- CGI. You would not build that. Huh. But I do think that that's one of the reasons why the movie holds up is because of, of that look. Like, I think it, it, yeah, it bad CG yeah. outdates really fast. Yeah, and I think matte yeah. paintings or like the, the, the stop motion dog, um, those, those still yeah. remain great. Yeah, stop motion yeah. service. Well, that, yeah. I think it's for Nolan who always, always said, I mean, he makes fantastic films and he tries to do everything in camera. I, I'm a big fan of Melies, for instance, like just yeah. simple, simple tricks. Like, you know, you let a person stand somewhere, you lock the camera, you let him go out and he can jump out while you think, how is it possible? I mean, the mere simple tricks are mostly the most effective. And uh, there, is, there are a number of those in Highway to Hell that they're just Melies tricks. Huh. And, and you're absolutely right that, strangely enough, those... I, when I saw Highway to Hell again uh, in, in March this year, I didn't think it had aged that much. Huh. I, I know I still thought that some of the sets were a bit cheap and some of this and some of that, but in, in the look, it hadn't aged that much. While generally, a f- generally you see a film, you see the time period in which it made. And that, that's a charm also, but sometimes... Um, you know, you can't stand it. I, I, at the moment, I, I look at a lot of films from the past, from the 70s, which was a time where I saw most of my formative years for filmmaking. And the strange thing is that the American films, generally, of the, of the early 70s, haven't dated, while the European films of, of Bergman and, and Visconti and Pasolini and Bertolucci, I mean, and even the Godards and all that, it is tough to sit through them. They're really very outdated now. Huh. Uh, what 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 about them is so outdated? Is it just like the um? The, is it the production design? Is it a, is it an aspect of the? the well, see, in the production design, for instance, there's some things you can't really help. I mean, clothing. When you have a, a, a I would tell us, of course, a fictional film, but still, there is like a certain temporary thing in there. So, clothing will always be a bit outdated. That will refer back to the time. But it's, it's usually the way of thinking. It's the filmmaking that outdates it very quickly. The, the um, Nouvelle Vague is very typical for the 60s. Mm-hmm. And the filmmaking and way of storytelling has evolved in a way that uh, dates those films enormously. Hmm. Uh, what you have a lot with films in the late 60s, early 70s, that they, that they use a lot of zoom lenses. Yes. And when they use the zoom lens, you immediately can place that film in a certain time age. And the American films have escaped, not entirely, but have escaped that a lot more than the European films. So it's the way of storytelling that gives it away more than the looks. Right. I can definitely see that. Um, Going back to um, Highway to Hell and the production, uh, was it, were you largely on location? Uh, was the movie largely made on location, or um, were there? It was entirely made on location, totally, okay. totally. If even the uh, the the sets we built were there in a, in a in a warehouse somewhere on location, it was all Arizona, um, and there was a little bit border of Utah and Arizona, and and because of the money, the production manager had said we cannot go further away than let's say twenty miles out of our. Uh, place where we stay. I think we stayed in Page, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one point we went to Phoenix. Uh, the, the interior of, of Hoffa's Hell is actually a uh, building of, uh, was a hotel that uh, Frank Lloyd Wright built. Oh. And uh, so, so we made one company move 
but, but, but we were restricted in our possibilities of moving. So we did everything uh, yeah, pretty concentrated. Was that a pretty brutal climate to shoot in? Because uh, Arizona can be really uh, hot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you wouldn't believe. I mean, at a certain point, we looked, I think that if you had, unfortunately, there was no behind the scenes then at that point, we would have probably looked like an alien, uh, <laughs> alien corpse with all these bandanas on everything. And I mean, there was no way to keep the sand out. You had to, 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 to sort of like wear moon boots and moon suits to uh, survive a little bit. It, it was it was incredible. It was a, it was a physical onslaught, but that also helps the uh, camaraderie. Strangely enough, huh. you know the, the whole crew somehow it was a sort of survival trip. You were all suffering together. <laughs> yeah, we're all suffering together. Yes, yeah. And and though we were not that high budget, the people were very well taken care of. The actors had their uh, motorhomes, and they had like, you know, they they were young, they were partying all the time, so they enjoyed it. And uh, the I can't remember the crew complaining, to be honest, but uh, they probably have, but didn't do it to me. What you know, what what do I know? But it, it was it was pretty tough, absolutely. I can imagine. <laughs> Speaking of the actors, how how did you get to this cast? Because a lot of them went on to do amazing things as well. Yeah, uh, the it's of course the, the 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 absolutely the credit of the casting director. You know, they they know the people. I didn't know that many young American uh, actors. Uh, ben Stiller was a friend of the, of Marianne Page, the producer, and Ben Stiller brought his whole family. You know, it was a package deal. We got uh, one. Uh, we got four for the price of one. <laughs> And and Ben Stiller then brought also uh, uh, Gilbert Gottfried, and uh, so one thing leads to another. Um, the um, we we did actually the normal thing. We just went for casting. We saw a lot of people, and at some point you make a choice. Uh, Christy Swanson. We all had the feeling she was going to be the next star, and. For a second, it looked like that because he was the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know, in the film. And that didn't work out. And I think that has really disappointed her enormously because she, I, I, she slid off to a totally different kind of movies. And I, I, I think she was very unhappy with her career. Hmm. But I lost touch, so I, I, I don't know. Uh, Chad was... Um, always suffered under the, 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 the fame of his brother and tried to get out of that. And I, I have to say, in retrospect, I'm not sure if that was smart because if somebody fights so much to, against a demon that you can't really win because you either accept that, that you have a famous brother or you don't, uh, but if you fight it, it somehow gets into the acting. He was, he was a bit tense to make it better. And I, I wasn't always able to um, avoid that. And, uh, but I, I, hope, I hope he's not offended about that because uh, uh, he probably thinks it's the role of his life. <laughs> it is a very memorable one. It absolutely sure. is. You mentioned earlier that there were uh, uh, test screenings as well. Did anything yeah. change because of those? Um, oh, that's more hard to remember. What, what I do remember, for instance, like... 
Uh, I love actors. I think actors are very intelligent, not like they can't explain the relativity theory of Einstein, but they have an emotional intelligence that you know, many of us don't have. So I love actors, but to loosen them up, I usually do like things that are unusual. It's like uh, I'll, I'll let them in, in rehearsals do, uh, say, put them with the backs against each other so they can't see each other, uh, hold each other very tight with their arms, and then say... Uh, what they think the other one means, you know, so you say your own dialogue, but after that the other person then reacts and says what he actually means and then says their own dialogue, which influenced the way you say your dialogue. So all these kind of things. Christy was very good in that. She was very open in doing that. Chad was very hesitant and very nervous about uh, getting out of his comfort zone. And then when you tape these things, so it's not screen test in the cl classical way of doing it on film, but you literally videotape it, and then you can discuss it with them, it helps enormously for their acting. Okay. Uh, and that was, that's always a delight, because my feeling is if the actors know what their character is, then you don't really have to say that much anymore on the set. I mean, you still do, of course, but you don't really have to. Do the only thing you have to say is, or the only thing you have to be as a director is be a good mirror and say, well, you know, it comes across like this and this and probably should come across like that because, you know, the, the only good acting is thinking. You know, act, film acting is thinking more than anything. Uh, and thinking, is, uh, thinking as a character is extremely difficult because very often actors think, oh, I'm now thinking as the character, which is not the same because then you're thinking about your character, but you are not your character. Right. And so the whole thing that I always try to do in... Um, in, 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 in with actors is make, create a circumstance that they can think as the characters. I mean, children are the best example. If, you, if a child has to be distracted, they have to act that they're being distracted. So what you do is you say, okay, if the child of six, you say two plus two plus four minus, four minus six plus nine. Now give me the answer. <laughs> and you turn the camera and they're thinking. Huh. Uh, and <laughs> of course, then at the end you say, they give you an answer, you think, Oh, God, I don't even know the question anymore. <laughs> I'm sure so you have to be a bit careful that you know some. But, but in a weird way, that is true for every actor. No matter how good the actor is, you have to create circumstances that they can think as their character. Right. Um, there was a child and for instance, in Ch Chad, for instance, always wanted to be addressed with his, uh, with his film name. Ah. He didn't want to be addressed as Chad. And I think... See, I don't necessarily believe in that, but I think if that helps him, yes, I'll do that. Huh. You know, I think that is a more American thing because um, because of the method. Um, I think uh, European. I, I know it's true of British acting. Like um, in Britain, they tend to be a little more detached, and they're like, "Well, I'm acting," and then Americans are more like, "No, I'm living as this character. I'm inhabiting the character." Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was a child actor in this. Um, was he easy to work with? Because I know one of the things that they yeah, say is never work with easy. children. <laughs> I mean, it, was, it was a bit classical. He had a, an absolute stage mother uh, <laughs> that she was like on top of us everywhere. And uh, though the child was six, he was a bit smaller than six. So he could get away with a little bit uh, younger. But uh, I mean, even if he was six, he still had to be in a, in a child seat and he had to be this and that. She was very overprotective. And... Uh, but that had a weird um, effect that he sometimes, while he was in front of the camera, he felt free because she couldn't say anything. 
Mm. So she, he felt more free while he was acting than he was not acting because then she was also sc uh, homeschooling him uh, in, in off time. So she was very dominant. Mm. Uh, and uh, that was not necessarily bad for the film. I'm not so sure if it was good for him personally, but uh, it wasn't bad for the film because he felt much more free when he could go to the set. Yes. And it, it plays into the film itself because this is a child who is, you know, bound to Beelzebub, Hell, yeah. basically, you know, yeah. so that, that kind of fits. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, uh, jumping back to what you were saying about the rehearsal, oftentimes you hear here, especially with low budget movies, that there wasn't enough time for rehearsals or for getting into characters. Um, did you guys have enough time to rehearse or did you, how, how did that go? I didn't have a feeling we did not have, I mean, I should, oh, actually, I shouldn't use double negative. Yes, I did think we had enough time. It was more uh, the willingness of the actors that determined it. Because strange enough, the actors always say, oh, I would love to, to uh, rehearse for a month. In reality, you're happy that you get them for two days because they're always busy with, with uh, other things. Uh, particularly, you know, that age group is, is very, was very party happy. So they were very busy with, before the shooting, they thought, oh, we're going to go to Arizona for six weeks. We better party now because it's not going uh, to happen for a, a few months. So we had a tough time just getting them in. Hmm. But the time was there, and, and whatever time we got, we did use. Huh. So I, I know people always say uh, there's not enough time, but... In the end, it is all a matter of priority. If you make that a priority, if, you know, if people say, oh, we have to go location scouting, oh, we have to do camera tests, and you say, but the rehearsal with the actors is more important, it is all a matter of priority. So I don't think um, that we had a real issue. We, for instance, like with Ben Stiller, I couldn't rehearse because he came on the set and we shot the scene, or with, with Gilbert Gottfried. But with Gilbert Gottfried, you count on his improvisation talents anyway you know the script whatever was written there i don't think he said anything that was was in in the script and we pr pretty much knew that up front that that would happen right mm -hmm. um and that, that's fine you know that's that's why he was in there um so yeah all in all uh, and what i always also do Certainly at that time, I write the actors a very long letter and explain how I see the character, what the motivation is of the character, what the character actually uh, has done before the film starts, and what they're most likely to do what after the film is finished, unless they're dead, <laughs> because that makes the letter a bit short. Uh, uh, but so, so I give them a lot uh, to think about. And they can do it with whatever they like. You know, l literally, if they don't want to read it, they don't have to. If they don't want to be like, uh, won't have any prejudice. Well, I've never had that actually. Everybody always wants to know about it. But um, you tr you try to prepare them as much as possible. And and the only way to do that is is talk as much as you can. And then if you can't talk, at least you can express your feelings on on paper and then talk about that because that 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 sort of at a certain point, it is not making the character broader. At a certain point, it is actually slimming it down and making sure that the important things uh, are highlighted enough to, so they become recognizable. Because if you're going too broad, you drown uh, in its diversity, and, and that doesn't help a character. Right, right. 
Um, looking back, not just on Highway to Hell, but also your filmography, um, is there something, is there some aspect of your films that you consider, like, your signature as a director? Like, if you were going to point to something in your films, you're like, that's me. What would, you, uh, what yeah. would that be? As I said, you know, earlier, like the director is probably the worst person to talk about his own films <laughs> because, you know, you know, I all these things, I thought it wasn't a good film and other people love it and all that. And uh, that happens a lot that that you actually like films for the wrong reasons. You know, you had a great affair with the script girl and you think, <laughs> oh, God, such a great affair. The film is great. And the film, you know, you can't. It's horrible. Or you have like, you have the thing, this is the worst film ever because, you know, that went wrong and that went wrong. That person hated me. And other people say, it's a very nice film. But come back to your question is, uh, there, there is something, and you sort of discover it later. It is not that conscious in the beginning. It is there a little bit that it becomes more and more conscious. And there is something of, in, in most of my films, if not all, something of maturing, of uh, being in a situation, getting into another situation which asks that you mature. And in order to mature, you have to usually lose a lot of the past. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to accept that the past is the past and will not change anymore. And uh, these days I usually uh, translate it in a, an almost a religious wording, but it's not meant religious, like acceptance and forgiveness. Yes. You have to accept what others do to you, but you primarily have to accept yourself for what you do to yourself. And you have to forgive others, but you particularly have to forgive yourself. So it means that, that you have to uh, accept that life sometimes is what it is and that you can, can't always influence it, but that you can try to be in there as good as you can be and have to um, accept the humanity of other peoples, which is not always the best thing according to the law, but is the best thing that you can do according to your uh, conscience. But that sounds heavier than, well, I, mean, I don't actually, maybe it doesn't sound heavier than I mean. But I sort of saw there was this line of basically a person that has to accept his limitations and by accepting the limitations actually matures. Yes, that, cer that certainly was a theme of, of Drop Dead Fred where she kind of has, she has to let go of her mm -hmm. imaginary childhood friend and she's able to move on like as a, as a complete person, you know, so yeah. that theme definitely yeah. came out there. Yeah, I mean that was in Highway to Hell stronger be, be, because of the original ending. The original ending had uh, a, a, a similar acknowledgement of what had happened, yes. and and that that has disappeared now. Uh, I mean, it's still the theme is still there, as you you pointed out earlier. I mean, he he seems to uh, go on a quest, not only on a quest to get his girlfriend back, also on a quest to prove himself that he can. Uh, do this and that he actually is uh, mature enough to uh, uh, to not be dependent upon other things that happen to him. Yes. So um, you've moved from, you know, American style, you know, big, well, relatively big budget filmmaking. Um, you've gone back to Europe and uh, you're living in London now, is it? I, I, not live, uh, I divorced a few years ago. I now live in Amsterdam again, oh. but I'm in London next extremely much you know it's 40 minutes flying so uh, almost half of the time I'm in London but technically I live in Amsterdam 
Okay, and um, I believe that your last film, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was a it was a Romeo and Juliet story, and you guys uh, kickstarted that. Um, yeah, there was a Kickstarter. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, but but you know that was just a very small amount. Right. So the, the, basically, the uh, uh, we had uh, an, an investor, Ingenious, who also financed Avatar. We didn't have the budget of Avatar. I can promise you that. <laughs> but they also do things. They did the King's Speech. They did uh, Brooklyn. They did uh, um, Carol. They did a lot of films. And b- because you know, I lived in London after I lived in LA. I lived in London for fourteen years and knew these guys well. And they said, "Oh yeah, you know, you, it's nice. You know, I, we think it's a it's a good it's a good opportunity." And so we got it financed, and we did it for very little money, uh, and we were able to make it with with the great British cast. Mm-hmm. It actually is going to show, uh, it's going to premiere in Chicago the 14th of October. Oh, and then, That's great. Huh. And then the 15th of October, it's in Mill Valley and the festival. So we have two fa- festivals day back to back. Nice. <laughs> um, how is the process of um, getting, actually getting a film rolling and getting it financed? Like, obviously, it's such a different process from, you know, it was back when Highway to Hell is made, I feel like in a way there are, there are more options, but it's almost more difficult um, because, you know, you can yeah. kickstart a film, but, you know. Yeah, it's always been difficult. It's, it's always like, you know, uh, the, 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 the good thing is particularly, I, I like the American system much more because the, the danger of the European system in general, the, and then basically I mean the subsidy system is, is that you get an enormous influence of committees. Because the committee has to say that your script is good, it has to be artistic, and at the same time it should be a little bit commercial, but it at least should go to festivals. So you get an influence which drives you away from your first uh, impulses. And it, 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 it's really not that good. The good thing about the, the current situation in, uh, well, just going to change probably, <coughs> in England and in America is there is only one driving factor you know, if you simplify it a little bit, it's are they going to make money with it or not? So if they make a film of five million, then it's only like, are we going to make more than five million? If you make a film of 50 million, it's, are we making more money than 50 million? If, you, if they feel, if a financier feels that they're going to make um, enough money with a film that's only black with sometimes white dots, you get to make it. <laughs> so there's almost no content... Uh, uh, censorship while in the subsidy system no matter what people say there is a form of hidden censorship and censorship is a very harsh word because it's not a they don't it's not meant to be negative Uh, but the but the financing is just like it was in in the time of highway to hell Uh, there's only two ways to finance a film if it's a pure genre film and genre film is usually thriller or horror, then you're not depending on cast. If you have anything else like a drama or a comedy or something, you're usually very cast dependent. Or you have to make your film for less than half a million. Then, you know, you have, you, with a little bit of luck, you find people who can, who have the money and want to, like, gamble because it can bring them somewhere else. Right. So, to me, at this point, I, a few years ago, I made a very big film in Holland. I've never had worse reviews in my life. Now, I don't read the reviews, but your friends tell you. you know, that's what friends... The friends tell you, oh, you know, you shouldn't read that and that. They always say that, and then you know what they say, though you don't want to know. But uh, 
it, it's not easy for me to make films here in Holland because I, I won't get the money because subsidies are always also always given to young people because everybody wants a first or second time director all those poor people making few films they can never make a film after that and so it's very not wise to become dependent upon that it's not easy to but but I been lucky to be able to work abroad and and look for it um, so it is the ultimate truth is you have to borrow back steal murder your aunt rob a bank and do anything to get money to get a film made so it is an it's it's an extreme thing of persistence but it's still the same thing is true if you have a big budget you have to have the name cast which is very difficult because you know then you have like let's say 10 million well you're not going to get Kira Knightley or Meryl Streep in a film of 10 million Unless you know him personally very well, and then even then it's not that easy. Uh, so you you go to slightly different kind of actors where uh, who are still very good, but don't necessarily open a film, and then you have to convince the financiers that they will be very good for this film. So the, 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 it is it is hard, and and you have to run risk yourself. I think that virtually all my films, not with Highway to Hell or Drop That Thread, but virtually all my films I made in Europe. I took the initiative, I invested money, and because they saw somebody was taking a risk, then, um, then other money came. But you have to be very careful because you can take a risk and lose everything, so you have to make very calculated risks. Uh, so it, it, it hasn't changed that much. The, the, people say there's so many more forms of uh, financing. That's not really true. I mean, you have like these these crowdfunding. You don't really get money through crowdfunding. You get like ten, twenty thousand dollars or something, unless you have a major star. Mm -hmm. If you have a major star, if you have George Clooney, yes, crowdfunding will give you a lot of money. But then you probably don't need that anymore because you're going to get it from the studio anyway. Um, uh. It's, and, and people say you have Netflix and Amazon. They don't necessarily pay mo enough money to make uh, a high budget or a, a, a good quality budget film. Right. In the past, you had video, you had other sources. So the landscape changes all the time. But And it is a little bit of a weaving thing in there. But I, I never had the feeling it has drastically changed. Right. You know, people say there's a lot more possible in TV. That is true. There's more, more possible in TV. And I find that a pity because I think TV is definitely another medium than uh, film is. Uh, but, you know, if you, if you have the opportunities, yeah, you should do it. Right. You were mentioning the, the committees and the, the film funds. And in Holland, you were part of the film fund for a little bit. How was yeah, that being was on the other side? Uh, it, it was very uh, revealing because uh, I was just divorced, literally, and I thought, oh, I'm going to jump out of the window. And then I uh, uh, I got a call, uh, and I thought my telephone had broken because nobody called me. I had been away from Holland for a long time. And then I got a call from the film fund, do you want to be the commercial intendant? Uh, and I thought, well, I'm emotionally in no shape to make a film for the next few years. This is going to give me structure. And it's going to give me a bit of an income, which is a good thing. And lo and behold, they announced it. And I had so many friends within a day. Because if you have money to give away, you have a lot of friends immediately, instantly. And uh, two years later, it was over and my phone was broken again. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, 
it's that same. I I know that phenomenon, and I wasn't surprised by. It. I laughed about it, but I was very surprised because I had been in in abroad for about twenty two years. Of course, I visited Holland, but I hadn't really worked in the industry anymore. And there were all these things that I thought, yeah, but that is just not true. People said there was no awareness of of knowing your audience. Because I said to when I asked people who came with a plan, I said, who's your target audience? She said, everybody between 8 and 80. I said, that does not exist. <laughs> that sounds like a board it game. Just, <laughs> I said, it just does not exist. You have either women who are bored and sit at home and go with friends to see a film, or you have young professionals who want to, uh, who want to relax, da, 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 or you have a date movie, and that has people from, let's say, 16 till 22, or you have this, or you have a, a film that people over 30 like because it has an intellectual quality. There are, everything is a niche group, and if you're lucky, you have many niche groups together. But you have to determine why people would like this film, and nobody really thinks about that. And it's now a little bit better, but nobody really cared. Uh, and the same thing was like they say nobody knows what's a success and they said well that's not entirely true you know that if you want to make a success you need a number of very predetermined things uh, and of course I got uh, that they, they really thought because I wrote an essay about that that has hurt me a lot here because people did not want to believe that because one of the things I said is that if you have a High concept film, but a real high concept film like James Bond, reviews are of no real great influence. Now, if you have a review of James Bond and it's a bad review and the PR is good, that film will still do well. Mm. Um, and I said also, if your concept, I always use an, uh, an example. I'm not sure if you can use that for your broadcast, but I'll try. <laughs> I, I, always, I always said like, no, Holland has a new queen now. She was still a princess when she came there. And I said, if you have the new queen, Maxima, in a hotel room, naked with a German shepherd who has an erection, you have a hit. <laughs> it's probably true. I, I said, it might not be a good film. It might be an awful film. But that is something else as being a hit, so you know what can be successful. It's something else, whether or not you want that. You know, right. There's nothing saying you don't want that. But you should not say that nobody knows, because also if you have a film and you release it in one print, you're not going to be a hit. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you need a minimum release, you need an, a, a, a must-see factor, you need a concept that is appealing, uh, you need a, you need, you can list a number of things. Now, you can still make a bad film and it can't work. That's something else. But if you don't do a number of these things, you know for sure that you, no matter how good the film is in its integrity, you know it's not going to work. So I was surprised that there was no thinking about that at all. It did not exist. Are, there, are those the moments that you, you miss Hollywood? Oh, absolutely. I, I adored it there. And, uh, you know, I went to London with a film because there was a strike in Hollywood. And then I met a new woman. And, you know, love always wins from Korea, uh, <laughs> which, of course, now I think is that so wise. But uh, uh, that's not the story. Uh, I, I miss it very much. I, I, uh, I, I adored it. And I, I regret a little bit that, yeah, that I didn't continue there.
Because in, in London, I thought, oh, I do the same as what I did in, in America. It absolutely did not happen. I, you know, I, I knew everybody. Everybody loved me. And they would never give me a day's work. Now that I don't live in London, now I suddenly make films there. Because, <laughs> but that's because, the, the, that's because the tax shelter works very favorably. Uh, and, and don't use the uh, BFI or the subsidy system. Um, Ivka was explaining to me because you know this was um, this is something I didn't know. Being American, was that you mentioned you mentioned earlier that you did um, a poorly reviewed film, I think in Holland. Um, I believe it was about the bombing of Rotterdam, um, and yeah. there was, I think, some antagonism between you and the Dutch press. Um, did yes. You, yeah. Like. And you kind of spoke back to your critics. Do you think that they did? You, do you think that they turned against you because you spoke out, or was it just like a reaction to the film? Or, uh, you know, it's always a hard thing, and there's a little bit of time. See, I thought they they uh, took a revenge shot at me because of my essay about success, which was before uh, the bombardment blitz. Uh, where was that essay published? I'm sorry to interrupt, but where was that essay published about success? That was. I, 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 I think it was published on the Directors Guild website. Okay. Uh, and uh, I can send it to you because I have it like in a PDF or something. No, that would be um, great, please. Uh, but but uh, so that was before the bombardment even existed. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, so I had made such an issue of you can't predict the success of a film. And I had made a whole schedule. And I had done a few of these predictions, and generally I had been right. So I had also said, well, the bombardment should at least get about 350,000 people, and we didn't. And uh, uh, so they, there was like, but we didn't know that, of course, when the reviews came out, because the reviews came out before the film. Uh, I mean, we still had a, a decent, great amount of people, but it was definitely less than I had thought, which also shows you what I say in the, in the article, in the essay also, you should never... Uh, judge your own film because there is too much wishful thinking there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you cannot be cool and an analytical about your own movie, about your own project. Um, but having said that, so th there was an antagonism from the critics. I I've learned one thing in Hollywood that you should never take things personal. You know, if they uh, uh, bash me, it doesn't mean that I dislike them, but it also means to me, that, that I don't necessarily have to accept it. So everybody said, oh, you shouldn't react. And I thought, but wh why not? You know, they have basically not treated me with the respect that the film deserves. And I found that wrong. And I thought, I'm not going to hide it. Uh, whether it's wise or not, I don't know. But I thought, it is so easy to stand above it. It is far more courageous to confront it, but confront it in a very decent way. So I wasn't like saying uh, about the critics like, oh, you know, they're this or they're vindictive or that or that. But I did uh, accuse them of not uh, looking at what the film was intended to be. It was not intended to be uh, a, a specific uh, philosophical essay. It was, it did have a deeper meaning and all that. But it was, it, uh, it was, a, it was intended to be a film for the mass market. Mm -hmm. So, you can't judge it then on other uh, criteria, which are not, which don't belong to that kind of movie. I thought, anyway. <coughs> uh, yeah, uh, 
I weirdly enough to hold don't don't hold any grudges. No, they were very angry in Holland because the guy who played the lead is a singer and he's a very famous singer. I weirdly enough didn't know him because I came from England, <laughs> so I didn't know how popular he was. Uh, but I thought he was marvelous. He had a charm. He had a an absolutely a sincerity that so often you don't see with normal actors. So I thought he was fantastic, but. He, he, because he's a folk singer, uh, not a folk singer, that's the wrong word, because that means something else in America. But he's a, he's a singer that, almost like he sings slaggers, you know. So he's not very popular with a part of the population, and he's very popular with others. So we thought that those people would come, and in all fairness, they didn't come. They waited until it was on television, and then they saw it, like, en masse. The, the TV screening we had two years later was one of the highest viewed films in years but it was really that's a, a big difference i feel between holland and, and the u.s uh, when it was announced that that he would be playing the lead people were already like but he's a singer that's not he shouldn't yeah. be acting whereas in america if rihanna wants to act or lady gaga yeah. everybody's all yeah. for it absolutely i mean look at that look at america there's so many actors who don't have a uh, acting background, and you can argue whether or not they're good or not, but there's a lot of them, there's very good ones also. Uh, the, the, so, America does look at that in a very, very different way. Now, the, in the culture of America, of course, almost everybody's an actor. I mean, if you go on the street and you put a camera down and you just interview somebody, people know how to deal with a camera. Yeah. While uh, in Holland, people don't know. They find it scary, they find it uh, intrusive. They, they, they draw up a shield, it, it changes a little bit now, but, but uh, the, 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 the easiness that Americans have in a generalization way, that does not exist, that does not exist here in Europe. Maybe a little bit in Italy, but not, not in general, it doesn't exist. So I had many things against me, and then we had the, this unfortunate that because of money reasons, we went to Budapest to film the bombardment scene because we were not allowed to do certain things in Rotterdam. You, know, you you can't really uh, create a bombardment there because it was too dusty and it was too this and it was too that. So we had to move to other areas. Uh, but then the people in Rotterdam were offended that it wasn't done in their city. <laughs> so suddenly you had like all these things and they were offended that Jan was playing the lead because he didn't come from Rotterdam and there were so many good actors in Rotterdam. And then the actors started to say, but, you know, how can he act is there so many good actors. We have we had done screen tests with others, but he was the best. So anyway, in my eyes. So, but at a certain point, you know, there's there's not that much you can do. I have always had the feeling I still have that, and maybe that's been a little bit reinforced now by Highway to Hell and Drop That Threat. The bombardment will find its place in the future because the weird thing is if if you're attacked so viciously, so tremendously hard. And not once or twice, but weeks, months on a row. That, that was that was every TV program had a, an opinion about it. That was impossible. There must be something in the film that mm. at least makes it worth to get so upset about, huh. and not necessarily like a negative thing. But so many people wanted to make sure that their opinion was more important than the film. And if it's just a bad film. You know, you basically, as a critic, you write, oh, God, you know, I saw this film, I didn't really like it, you know, this is the story, don't go see it. That's it. But if you, if you write article after article, why this is not good, and why this, and why that, and, and if it becomes so vicious, then there's something else. 
so I, I put a lot of courage out of that. I thought, oh, that means that the film is going to find its place later. That's actually true, and that plays into a it's, a, it's, it's what It's what's called the Van Gogh syndrome. You, know? <laughs> you become famous for death. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, and it, it plays into a theme of this podcast, which is um, something that I found in doing episodes, is that a lot of times we'll, we'll pick a movie, myself and my co-host, and we'll pick, we'll pick a lot of stuff sight unseen that we think looks interesting, and we'll watch it. And sometimes we watch it and we really can't, there's nothing to discuss about it because it's not, you know, we didn't have any strong reaction to it either way. We either didn't really like it or we didn't really dislike it. And I actually have a couple episodes in the can that I haven't put out because it's like, well, that discussion wasn't very interesting. And then the movies yes. that, um, there are a couple movies we've done which, you know, are considered very terrible. Like we did one about, um, my friend and I did one about the movie Nothing But Trouble that Dan Aykroyd made. And we yeah. had a huge discussion about it because there was so much to talk about because our reaction to it was so strong and it's actually considered like a very terrible movie and it isn't a very good movie but there was something to talk about you know yeah. so yeah. but you know the flip side is sometimes we'll watch a movie which is very good and we really like it and our discussion will be a, a little bit bland you know like we watched <laughs> Highway to Hell and Ifka and I liked it so much you know it was all just saying like oh yeah I really like this part and I really like this part too and I thought this yeah. was very good and this is very good as well, <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. there is that. <laughs> I mean, that's absolutely, I mean, Highway to Hell, uh, you could say, you could see a lot of things and you could find a lot of things that are, you know, a little bit under par if you had had more money, if you had this, if you had that. But I, now, after all these years, though I, you know, as I said, I didn't like it as much when we just made it. After all these years, I think uh, there are a few things in the core that actually are hidden there. And are still there, and I'm surprised that people pick up on them. So it's not all that bad, um, and that's certainly true with Drop That Fret, where this whole hidden uh, life, uh, which is totally in the subconscious, is is hidden there. If 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 Drop That Fret had just been a comedy, a funny comedy, mm -hmm. it wouldn't have half as much a following as it has now. I, I, I literally, on a weekly basis, I get emails from people, mostly from England, mm -hmm. that ask me about Drop That Fat and this and that and, and all these kind of things. And I, I still believe it is because the film has another layer that's never talked about what makes it so appealing. Hmm. Yeah, and um, watching it, that certainly came out like the, the, um, the dimension of emotional abuse and, you know, abuse like within a family environment, which isn't talked about. And what, uh, what struck me yeah. watching the movie was that um, because... Um, I don't know if it was just at the time or like in hindsight, like people like it's cons like people really look down on it and they have like a really strong negative reaction to it, and it's like oh it's terrible. And then you watch, I watched it and I was like, this movie is like I don't understand why anybody would have the, like that strong a negative reaction to it. And I often yeah. wonder if it was just um, you know because at the time um, maybe you know because there is kind of there you know there's some like gross out humor because it's from the point of view of a child and her childhood companion yeah. and i think yeah. maybe now like people would take it more in stride and at the time it was yeah. maybe seen as kind of shot you know like oh there are booger jokes in it and like you know stuff like that where and people were like oh no how can you even say that you know and now like with south park and stuff like that people take it you know they're just like oh yeah it's gross that's how it's supposed to be but I felt like that's one yeah. of the strengths of the movie is that it is like it it really captures like that um, childish view of like thinking these very like immature things are funny and just kind of like 
acting out in like a really extraordinary way because you're a kid you don't know how to act and that's why um you know the the young girl character like you know through fred does these really outrageous things because she's reacting in a way she can't talk maturely about her feelings so she just acts out yeah it has a lot to do with with in that case with uh, rick of course also rick mail who yes. you know had this this totally anarchistic uh, tv show the young ones i love you and it, yeah, and so he, he, it's not like he brought that in, but he certainly encouraged it and did it with such a gusto. And I had so no moral objections against these things uh, <laughs> that, that, that I didn't, I never thought that people could be offended about it. Yeah. You know, I, I, th I thought it was just fun, but it had, was fun with a meaning. And also because she, th th that's typically a film where she has to lose everything to mature. And she has to lose her past, she has to lose Fred, otherwise she can't go on. Um, but it was definitely a film when it was released. It had some marvelous reviews, but it also certainly had some reviews that absolutely disliked the film. But the people liked it. It was an absolute hit at that time for an independent film. Yes, which is great because, you know, I think there's, there's so much interesting stuff in that film, even like watching it now years later. And I think because people are more aware of... Um, things like childhood trauma like that's more talked about yeah. now like maybe that's why it still has resonance and why it strikes a chord with people yeah there was a time where the uh, California Association of Psychologists used the film in their therapies uh, <laughs> for, for certain treatments I'm not sure if they still do but uh, and and the, I was uh, half a year ago I was in uh, uh, in New York um, and the, the, I always meet the writers there because they live in New York and they said apparently there are hospitals where you have terminally ill children horrible of course and they these children can do a wish and one of the wishes they can do is that actors will come in and play a scene out of a movie and according to the writers the, the two movies that score highest are The Sound of Music and Drop That Fred so they want, they want these wow. poor kids are so sick, they want actors to come in and play a scene from Drop That Friends. <laughs> that's really, that's yeah. amazing. And like with um, yeah. And yeah. the stand, I, I with never sound of music, I, that's like, cannot, that's the canon, the great film yeah. canon yeah. too. Be different children. <laughs> <laughs> so what, uh, what are you working on now? Um, you're living in Amsterdam. Or are you trying to make another film in London or um, in your yeah, country? Yeah, uh, that, 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 that's uh, you know. I always think that if you're very harmonious and in, in tune with life, and who is nobody, of course, maybe the Dalai Lama. But then you don't have to. Then you don't need to make films anymore. So there is still enough ambition to go on. And the harsh reality for me is that if you make a film in the English language, you have so much more opportunities uh, to to have it seen. Broad. I mean, the bombardment was my first film in Holland for the, something like 25 years. And, you know, if it's massacred in its own country, okay, it was still, like, decently well visited and certainly on TV, but it's never going to travel. Mm. You know, before Love is Thicker Than Water, I made an extremely small film. That was almost like a, 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 a fun thing because literally we had done the bombardment, the reviews, and I talked to uh, uh, a guy in London and said, oh, uh, this is so mean. And he said, oh, I have this script. Do you want to read it? And I read it. I said, can I get Cronenberg or David Lynch to do this? It's that good. 
And she said, oh, but it's going to take years and a big budget. Why don't we do it for no money at all? At all? And you do it. And I thought, you know, the best thing to get over a bad experience is to make a new film. Yes. So we made that yeah. film, that before is pure genre film, uh, but, 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 you know, more than a genre film, because uh, I really think it's a good film. And just because we made it in the English language, it's sold to Japan, it's sold to Germany, it's sold to whatever Korea, it's sold to like eight, nine countries. That would never happen with a film in the Dutch language, mm -hmm. even if the film was the same quality. Mm -hmm. uh, the the uh, perception of an English language film is different than the perception of a Dutch film. So if it's up to me, yes, I will try and make another English language film. What I did discover with Love is Thicker Than Water, I find myself that my, my film language has become rusted. You know, I, I'm, I'm beyond the age of the general movie-going audience. And um, I co-directed Love is Thicker Than Water. I did it together with a, 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 a younger director who was starting. So I could basically um, depend on her images because she's far more in tune with what modern way of storytelling is in, in the images. And she could depend on my experience whether or not it was achievable or how to tell a story with a camera. Mm -hmm. so th and that was a very happy marriage. So in, if it's a little bit possible, we'll do that again. So I, it's not like I'll, I'll do another film and I'll direct it. I would be very happy to co-direct or even just write and produce because I think with those two elements, you can steer a film very much also. Huh. And uh, what was that? What was the name of that genre picture that you made? It's called Deadly Virtues. Deadly Virtues, Deadly Love, Virtues. Honor, Obey. Okay, and we will definitely tell. No, I'm not sure if it's out in America out. yet. I think it will be, but it's it's typically one of those films that is absolutely illegally on the internet somewhere. <laughs> well, on this podcast, we seek out that which is hard to find. Absolutely, so we will find it and we will watch it. You have to have you have to have a strong stomach, but it's but but keep on going. It is worth it. We do like. I we, think. Oh God, the expectations are going to go completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm here. Like, uh, we're definitely the podcast for people with strong stomachs. We've talked about some really weird out there stuff on <laughs> on Have You Seen This? So we will definitely seek it out. We're glad to hear that. Um, please, please, please keep us updated with what you're doing. Um, yeah. We definitely want to hear about your next projects because um, you know what I've seen of your stuff. I've enjoyed it so much. And oh. Thank yeah. you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah. This is wonderful. Okay, guys. Thanks yeah, very much. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.